If you have a low vision patient that says um, they're having difficulty or cannot do certain things, I can't read write like I used to. I can't I can't see the signs driving. I can't play cards. I can't see the theater. I'm having a hard time. It's really affecting my life. And you know, as a doctor, that you've done the best refraction and the best pair of glasses, and they're still sitting here saying the same thing. I I am really struggling. I can't do the things I want to do. That's a low vision patient. Hello and welcome to the Crystal Podcast on iCode Media. Today, I had a great conversation with my good friend, Dr. Rob Stam. We talked about low vision, the IALVS, and, and what he has been able to do uh, with that organization in our state of Nebraska, South Dakota, Colorado. Uh, it was a, a ton of fun to talk to Rob about this. Um, please enjoy our conversation. As always, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, write a review, share it with your friends, and support those who support us. All right, man. So you got a busy day in clinic? I want to discuss the My Day Toric contact lens for a minute. When I'm reaching for a daily lens for my patients, I need to know that it will be available in the parameters I want, and it also needs to work. This improves my chair time and my patient satisfaction. The MyDay Toric lens features the same optical lens design features as the most prescribed monthly replacement Toric lens on the market, the Biofinity Toric. MyDay Toric now completely mirrors Biofinity Toric's parameter range, and to be clear, this means that if you can find a parameter in the Biofinity Toric, you can find it in the MyDay Toric. This Toric lens design is multifaceted to ensure optimal visual acuity, lens stability, fit, and comfort. Its uniform horizontal ISO thickness and wide ballast band quickly orient the lens for better performance and simplified fitting processes. When prescribing MyDay contact lenses, you can feel confident about your environmental impact because for every MyDay contact lens sold in the United States, CooperVision's partner, Plastic Bank, collects and converts an equal amount of ocean-bound plastic through their global network. The MyDay Multifocal and MyDay Toric contact lenses will provide your patients with great vision quality and comfortable lens experience, all while making a difference in our environment. So if you haven't started utilizing MyDay Multifocal in your practice, I'd encourage you to reach out to your CooperVision representative to get started. As you know, patients with vitreous floaters are often frustrated by their symptoms. The challenge as clinicians is to offer solutions for our patients for vitreous floaters that are effective. But more often than not, the options of YAG vitreolysis and vitrectomy are not practical because the benefits don't outweigh the risks. That's where vitreous health from MacuHealth comes into play. Previously on the podcast, I've discussed the FLIES study with Dr. John Nolan, and the bottom line is that I can be confident prescribing this for my patients with floaters because I can tell them a large randomized placebo-controlled trial found that after six months of supplementation with vitreous health, floaters were reduced in size by approximately 30%, and 70% of patients had an improvement in their symptoms. Vitreous health has been great for my patients, and we really feel like we have a viable option to treat patients with vitreous floaters now that we didn't have before. If you're not utilizing vitreous health for your patients, reach out to your Macchia Health representative now. Yeah, thanks for doing this. Thanks for being hey, on. No, it's man, been a long time like, coming. Yeah, no, I uh, thanks for having me. How was the, uh, you went to the Bahamas, right? Yeah, yeah, just got back um, Sunday. Yeah. And it's you nice. didn't fly down there? 
No, that's uh, dude. That's uh, that's a that's a a thing you should do. You should have that as a goal to fly the the Bahama chains there because it's it's made for general aviation. It's awesome. Yeah. Did you do it before? No, I was always on my I had a I had a trip planned to to do it all, fly from here and just slowly get down and then uh, then go. I had my EPIS and all that stuff done, but I never I never did. Um, actually, I was going to do it the summer I sold my plane. So, but it never happened. So you know, Roger was, did it. Roger, did he tell you about that? Uh, uh-uh, uh. Uh-uh. Yeah, he was. We were. We had a meeting in Tampa, I think, and Roger uh, stopped in Tampa. And then he was going to go to the Bahamas, and he had to pick up a dinghy. You know. Oh wow! And yeah. and he his wife uh, flew down there, and I, I I mean I'm sure it was just awesome. You know, going from one place, one one you know one little island to the next. Yeah, no, that'd be pretty cool. And the water, uh, the waters and the Exuma chains anyway are from the air just ridiculous i mean it's just yeah it's pretty mind-blowing really so yeah and yeah every little awesome. island has a little little runway so that's yeah it's pretty cool it's it's definitely um it's it's worth uh worth a do if you ever get a chance to fly down there and do that that would be good yeah I, yeah well well i'll see if i can convince jamie to go yeah. <laughs> with me i couldn't do it by myself so yeah, it's no, going to be a sure. lot of years in the future for sure oh yeah for sure you know yeah. you want to be a while but yeah, yeah cool well so um so, you know, Rob, uh, just for the audience, you know, for their sake, you and I, you know, I remember um, one time, this was years ago, I was probably a, a year out of practice. And I don't know if you remember this story, or you don't remember this story, but you had referred me. So, so for the audience, you know, Rob is in McCook, Nebraska, which is a, a small town in the southwestern portion of the state. And, um, and I think you had a longtime patient that had moved to Omaha and he had HSK. And you had referred him to me for a follow-up. And um, one of my experiences, Rob, was I, I, was, um, I was unprepared to deal with um, just things that didn't go exactly the right way. And I, I think I disappointed you a bit. You probably don't even remember, but I felt like I was disappointing you because I, I had questions or I wasn't able to handle it, the patient the way I did. And, and that was the, the way that I should have. And that was... Um, a great learning experience for me because, you know, I looked up to you, I still look up to you. And, um, and I, I felt like, man, I, I should have been able to handle this better. I should have been able to manage this case better. And so, you know, I, um, instead of just kind of shying away from what I didn't know, um, you know, I tried to invest in kind of learning more about what I, what I need to do and when those things don't go right and, and have a little bit more confidence in how to handle those cases. And I, I'll just credit you for, for, I, the brief back and forth we had stimulated me to say, like, I can do better and I don't have to be afraid of things. So thanks for that so many years ago. Yeah, yeah, uh, no, I appreciate that. Yeah. 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 Thanks for, you know, obviously, you know, you guys, um, you know, optometry practiced in rural in rural parts of, of states of all across the country gets generally practiced differently because you, you can't just rely on uh, somebody else to punt to. And, um, and so kudos to you for being able to do that. And I think, you know, guys like you have, and you specifically have kind of stimulated me to make sure that, uh, that I'm continuing to try to practice, uh, and learn new things and not be uncomfortable in uncomfortable situations. So anyway, for whatever that's worth, um, thanks for doing what you do. Yeah, no, thanks, man. And you're, uh, I look up to you a lot too, by the way, you, you're a very progressive guy and, uh, you, you, uh, you're not afraid to take anything on. So uh, I get a lot from that too. 
Thanks. Thanks. So, so what I wanted to do, uh, Rob, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about flying and, um, and I could probably talk about that a lot. <laughs> um, but, but I will avoid it here. The, uh, you know, and, and I think, but I do think it's interesting because you've got your pilot's license, you've had it for years, but you've also done kind of primary care optometry. And when I say primary care optometry for the listening audience, you know, I don't know that we define that all that well, but it's really, you know, managing complex chronic diseases from birth to, to death in the vast majority of patients. That's how Rob practices. Um, and, but he also kind of has this niche in low vision. And so that's really what I want to talk about is, is there's this kind of idea from a lot of us primary care guys like myself, it's like, I don't really want to do low vision. It takes too much time. It's too complicated. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, when I learned it, it didn't seem like the math was easy. So that's what I want to talk about. So sure. when did you kind of grow into that niche of low vision? It also allowed you to probably exercise your pilot skills a bit yeah. and travel yeah. and use that pilot license. So tell me about that a little bit. Yeah, it's, it's a kind of long story, but I'll make it short. But, um, yeah, actually, um, I did a little low vision um, kind of a rotation in school, but didn't really get much out of that at all. So I was pretty clueless in the low vision world coming out of practice uh, back in, uh, geez, 1994, something like that. Um, but one of my first patients, uh, uh, Mr. K, I'll call him, he came in with uh, these um, telescopes. It had a, just, a, just a spiral telescope, 8X on one eye bioptic kind of design and this big black clunky frame that was just falling apart basically uh it, it was from designs for vision that's about all i remember and he used this thing he's a farmer uh down the road and uh and by the way he was a he was an optic atrophy guy he was 50 58 years old farmer and he um his vision was like 2200 2300 and he had this 8x spiral that he used to see his cow tags and and he used it to drive with if you ever looked through one of those chris it was about the size of, it felt like it was looking through the size of a dime hole you know it was just it was such a small field it was ridiculous but the guy um he needed he needed help because that's uh that's the only way he could function and i had no idea what i was doing to be, be honest i had never really <laughs> dealt with this so i had this this is like literally one of my i would say within the first couple of weeks of practice fresh out of school you think you're all smart and everything and 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 know everything and i knew nothing so um, anyway, I called this designs for vision place, uh, which I'd never known about, um, and kind of told them what we're dealing with and, and, uh, kind of made something up as another bioptic, more binocular with, uh, with different oculars and whatnot. And it, and it sort of worked for him. It got him back on track and, um, got him a pair of glasses. And after then I kind of realized, man, I need to, I need to do something because I, I was like, you know kind of helped this guy, but I didn't really know what I was doing. So, so that's when I got into training with the uh, International Academy of Low Vision Specialists. IALVS is what I did. And I uh, went to New York, went to California. And uh, fine, I don't know if you know Richard Feinblum. He's probably the godfather of well, low I've vision. Heard, I mean, optics. yeah, I've heard about him. I don't, I've never his met son him. Is, his son is the one that uh, created the Designs for Vision Lab. So, um, And he was a real close friend of this Richard Sheldiner, which is the one that created this group that I'm part of and been a part of since 2006. But anyway, that's the long story short. Got the training, um, uh, very specific training in, in all the different low vision devices that really aren't your traditional. You know, you think of low vision, you think of CCTVs, you think of handheld magnifiers, you think of stand magnifiers, high ads, things like that, which um, we all can probably do that. And we all probably do in our own primary care practices. But I, I think for the most part, 
um, most of us in primary care are whenever, when somebody comes in with vision loss and we can't help them with regular glasses or anything else is we don't know what to do with them. And, and I think that's a, a really, really big deal in our profession is that nobody knows what to do with these people. I think we're really good at diagnosing and preventative treatment. I think we're really good at that. But when somebody loses their vision, we have no clue what to do with them. And, uh, I think that's what stimulated me to, you know, cause I could help this guy and I'm like, well, gosh, there's so many more patients I, you know, I see in my chair. So anyway, that's, that's how I got started. And I, I kind of got trained up and, and then started, uh, you know, some satellite offices in different States and, um, started doing it one day, basically one day a week, um, is what I was doing only three to four days out of the month is how I was doing my, my low vision. Um, and I was going to Colorado and South Dakota and, and Lincoln summit the initial, and that's really where the plane came in. Yeah. I got a plane. Cause it was like, man, I can't go to these places without, with driving. I'd be on the road all day. So anyway, that's, that's kind of how it all started way back in, uh, yeah, 2004, five, six, somewhere in there. And so, um, that's, that's kind of how it all started for me. Well, so then, so you had only been doing it a couple of years before I got out of school and I, I had already known that you were doing that. In fact, my dad told me that you had been doing it. Yeah. And, um, and so, but I thought my perception was, is that it was, it started a lot before that. I had a similar experience when I first came out of school with scleral lenses. You know, we had, mm. my dad had already kind of built up a practice, a referral practice for RGPs and corneal RGPs. And so I had to take over a lot of those patients because I had the time. And because I had the time when patients failed uh, with a corneal RGP, we, I, I was kind of, I, I remember that I remember distinctly this patient came from, from Kearney and this was 2009. Uh, so I graduated 2008, 2009, this patient came in from Kearney and, uh, and he, you know, we, we tried corneal RGPs. He had failed those before, even with a well-fit corneal RGP, just, it, he, he couldn't get the vision he wanted. It couldn't, you couldn't stay centered. And it was, it, it was severe. And, you know, we had other like hybrid designs, we had piggyback designs, but um, the hybrid design kind of tightened down pretty quickly. And, um, and, you know, even when it was well fitted in the office, he would go away and it would, it would tighten within an hour. Uh, so I was frustrated. And, um, and I went to the contact lens room, like we, we just had this contact lens closet in the office. And my and I, and I had been reading about scleral lenses. Uh, and my, my dad said, so I go and I'm rummaging through there and I find this box of Jupiter scleral lenses. <laughs> and, um, and I was like, dad, when did you get these? And they had fenestrations. He's like, oh, I don't know. Somebody gave them to me a few years back. And so I was like, all right, well, let me figure this out. I can figure this out. You know, and I had the time. And I mean, it's, it, it was like, you, it was kind of like, well, you set you on a path of feeling like, well, there's way better stuff that we can do. And, yeah, and why aren't yeah. we doing this? And, and now I think we're seeing that, you know, I think, I think scleral lenses are becoming much more commonplace in primary care practice. People are not as intimidated by them. Um, and, and so I think the same thing can be said about low vision. And so I think part of that though, is that you started seeing people write about it, people speaking about it, people educating about the fact that like, okay, you look at this fault and then you look at this fault, you want limbal clearance, you want to yeah. see this type of landing, et cetera. So tell me a little bit about uh, that sort of training that you got in terms of how do you know, like, okay, I'm going to use this type of telescope or this, like, what are the things that you're thinking about when you say, okay, the first step into low vision to do it 
the right way or the way you do it, yeah. where it removes that intimidation. Yeah, and and I yeah, let me I'll tell you kind of how that goes. I, I want to I want to define something that I think uh, some people don't get with when you when you say low vision. I'm I'm speaking to the general, just our general profession. What what does that really mean? And I think I think that's a starting point for many people because what is low vision? Is it 2060 vision? Is it 2080? Is it 2200? Is it a poor visual field? Uh, and the real answer is it's it's none of those. Um, it's absolutely none of those. Uh, what low vision is, is when a person, uh, loses enough visual function that they can't do what they want to do, period. That could be a 2040 patient. That could be any of those. So I think that's where sometimes our, when you're, when we look at a low vision patient, just generally in our chair, they have a macular degeneration patient in your chair and, and we try to, well, they're not low vision cause they're 2040 or they're not low vision, but they're 2050, but they're sitting there telling you, telling you. I can't do certain things in my life. And I think where we struggle as a profession is we don't know what to do with that patient. It's like, well, well, we'll give you a pair of glasses. Well, the, the low vision patient at that level, they've glasses have always worked for them. And, and we know most of the time with especially macular degeneration, your traditional glasses are most not, likely not going to fix or get them to function the way they want to function. So I think that's a starting point when you're dealing with low vision patients is understanding really and i think that definition is, is key is, is is it's not about the acuity it's not about any of that and so my low vision exam i really don't care what the disease is during this because i'm all about their function improving their function getting their wish list together focusing on that and, and the patients get that because they don't they don't want you to sit there and tell them about their disease uh, you know that's that's for the regular exam they don't they don't want to see the octs they don't want to they don't that patient wants some help and they're, and they're screaming for help because most likely with the patients I see anyway, they've seen five other doctors and probably got five other different pairs of glasses and none of them worked mm. and, and, and they don't work. We all know that, it, you know, unless we're doing high average. It's or an incremental like benefit. It's a very incremental benefit. Yeah. So, so that's, um, I think that's one of the keys is understanding that part of it. But as far as the, um, the low vision exam, uh, and I'm, I'm pretty straight with them. Uh, I think the key is setting the expectations at the beginning, um, meaning, uh, and before I even see the patients, I typically interview them on the phone because I want to understand kind of what I want them to understand what I do, which my goal is to get you to see better than what you're seeing now for the things that matter to you. And that's that's very specific. That's the way I, I talk to the, my patients that way. And I'm very clear with them as far as what their expectations are. So it kind of lines up a little bit. And and then from there, it's really, you know, asking some very specific questions about, you know, you want to see the TV better, your, 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 your kid's face is better, your reading, driving. Driving is probably one of the biggest ones. They lose their independence from that if they don't have that. So anyway, you create the wish list. And from there, man, you just, I mean, part of the training is, I mean, I can't get into all of it because it's really more of a psychology thing, meaning how to speak to and, and get away from the what we typically deal with our general patients in our chair because it's different. It's different because you want to you're offering them hope and you're probably in my mind, I'm their last hope. That's why yeah. I look at what I do. I, I take that very seriously, meaning they're coming to me because they want a better. They want a better quality of life. And I think that's that's what they want. And, and that's what I strive to provide. And that's why my exam is very function task oriented. And then it's show and tell. I work with near vision first. We go to some intermediate vision within the exam room. They're going to see exactly what we're going to see with the different telescopes we try, the different microscopes, all the things I have in my toolkit. 
we'll go outside and do the distance stuff last. And then we, we have a conversation about, and they're going to know they're going to get, they see better or they don't see better. And, and then I prescribe what is going to help them the best for the things they want to do. Sometimes that's one pair. Sometimes that's two pairs, but, um, you know, that's, that's the way I go about it. It's, uh, that's one of the training things is kind of the, the, the system to go through. Cause I think it matters, but really that patient, uh, offering them hope at the beginning. So they're, and, and that really changes their whole state of being because most of these patients are a little bit on the depressed side. They're very anxious. As you know, if you've got patients that have lost vision in your chair, they're, they're probably not the same person they was before they lost their vision. And I think, um, that's a big deal. And that's sometimes a tough barrier to break, but, um, man, if you can be that, be that guy that can offer them hope, show and tell them, work them through that, set the expectations, prescribe what's going to get them to function their best for the things they need. It's life changing for them and you can make a difference in their world. So what's interesting to me is, is obviously like this low vision exam patient comes in, you're going to want to do a refraction. So you probably, oh, probably yeah, do always. some sort of refraction. Yeah, always. And then, um, is that different than your general refraction? Um, not necessarily. I mean, it depends on the acuity level. You know, of course, a lot of it's trial frame. You'll do the trial frame refraction versus your, you know, foropter. But um, I mean, there's some offices I went to that didn't even have a foropter. So it was all trial, trial frame stuff. So, yeah, um, that's well, that's, that's, that makes so. it pretty mobile, right? Like to yeah. your point about being able to go from one place to the next. And, and then what also is interesting is the refinement of the near uh, demands first yeah because you know and I, again I, this is just the general practitioner and and the thought process of where do we always start you know refractions are always started at distance always. yeah 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 and and then near is sort of an afterthought where you're just like okay well how how close do you want to hold this there we go yeah. done yeah you know <laughs> yeah no that's, so that's what's the psychology good. of that do you think um the psychology for me is you do your fraction and, and their vision is what it is. And, 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 but when you get into the, the near, you're going to show them stuff with some of these telescope microscopes that they're going to be shocked that they can see. So when you first tested when they came in, they saw maybe 3.2 M or two, two M or, you know, something along those lines oh, with man, their regular I can't glasses. Remember M I'm going to have to go back and think yeah, about well, that. Well, no, just let's call it. That's like, another know, part. That's another problem yeah. with low vision, right? We yeah, talk about, we start, is. You know. It's a different language, but oh, anyway, you'll, you'll 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 have them see that card. That yeah, it's true. <laughs> we don't we don't get that in school at all. But anyway, you'll um you'll test their their vision with their near initially with their glasses, and then you you start working through the different different types of uh, near devices, um, and almost in all cases, especially with macular, they're going to realize they've got down to the twenty forty line, maybe better, and they started way up at, at the top. And it's like, wow. And then you got the, the patient's significant other sitting there seeing their mom, you know, read something for the first time in who knows how many years, depending some people, some, some has been a long time and actually see print that they never thought they could see. So to me, that's why the near is powerful because, and, and to be honest, most all wish lists, there's a near component. They're all missing. I can't read my newspaper anymore. I can't read my mail. I can't read my emails. Uh, that kind of thing, you know, Christmas cards, all the things that are important to them. So um, to me, that sets, um, that changes their whole aspect. Meaning now, now it's like, man, I, I'm seeing something here. And then that makes the rest of it just go, you know, you throw something on them and they can see their significant other's face all of a sudden through a, through a full diameter telescope. And it's like their faces light up. It's like, wow, 
And, and so that's powerful. And then you take them outside, maybe see something across the street if they're if they're distance, if they want to do the driving thing or whatnot. You kind of work through that. So, you know, the near really set the stage for everything. So to me, that's the psyche behind it. It gives the patient because honestly, they came in with probably skepticism. You know, they, they came in thinking they've, they've tried five other pairs of glasses and five other doctors and nothing's worked. And so they're skeptical and wondering that this isn't probably going to work for me. So they got all these doubts in their head. But man, once you once they get you work them down through that with whatever device you end up putting on them. Then they're like, man, this is this it changes their world. It changes their whole reality switches. It flips. And and then there's uh, that and then they're a different person than when they came in. And so that's yeah, yeah. that's the powerful part. Yeah. So then, so then, and I think the other part of that too, that I like is, you know, it's just like a multifocal contact lens patient. You know, you ask them about like, would you like to be free from glasses more of your day? And then you ask them, well, if, if you could be free from your glasses, what would the distance, like, where would you want to, what kinds of things would you want to do? You know, and they think, well, I I think I just want to, you know, um, play golf or I just want to go to a basketball game or to a movie. And then you probe a little bit and, and you realize like, they're just like in, in our world today, that's not going to be good enough, right? For the vast majority of patients, like they might tell you no. that right? and then you exactly. give it to them and they're like, but, but I can't see my phone very well, or I can't see my computer screen. And so, so like some of that is like the psychology of really, how do you ask the questions in the right way so you can get the right answer? And sometimes it isn't that you can get the right answer right away, but, um, but like, being able to identify that, that like, they might say, I want to drive Dr. Stam, but mm-hmm. then you realize like, I can make you drive. That's not going to be an issue. Um, but then you make them drive and you didn't even address these stuff up close. And this is what they do 90% of their day, yeah, but they just had, have adapted to that because of the independence they wanted with they, when they drive. And so then you uncover, it's like, holy cow, all these other things. So even if you couldn't get them to be legal to drive for whatever reason, maybe they're not even functionally you know, right, appropriate right. to drive, but now you've dominated a, a specific zone that they, they can definitely see an improvement. And, um, so I, I like that. I like that. Yeah. So the, um, all right. So my estimation, well, have you actually run the numbers on the number of patients that, I mean, if we just take macular generation in general, uh, the number of patients with, with, um, well, well, maybe it's central GA uh, or patients who have just reduction of vision enough. There may be no GA, but um, reduction of vision enough where like what would be the certain population where you'd say this is worth setting up a practice like this? You know, um, I can answer that a couple ways. I, I don't know if there's a definitive because honestly, when I see these patients, it's an interview on the phone. I don't talk about their. I don't know their specific disease, meaning I don't know how bad their GA is. I don't know. You don't know anything about that initially. And, and from my conversation, I, they may, you know, I may, I may get that they're seeing 2,200, 2,400, doesn't matter. I'm shocked every time they come in though, that their vision's always a little better than what maybe they said it was. And I still go through my exam the same exact way and treat them the same way without really knowing. So I've really never done any studies or anything in my own as far as you know, geographic atrophy or, you know, just dry MD or wet or diabetic retinopathy or any of that is purely on, you know, 
what happens in that exam room. And, and so none of that really, and I think that's the other thing that's hard for general, uh, you know, general, especially medical oriented practitioners is we're so honed in on the, the diagnosis and all the, the, the toys to do it and what it, and what, what the disease is and how big is a scotoma and how much the retina is gone. And, yeah, yeah. and none of that actually matters one single bit during the exam. It really doesn't. And so that's the different hat that has to, that I have to, I, I put on hundred percent different than my general regular exams I do in these patients. So, um, so yeah, I, I don't think it matters one bit. Um, I've been shocked that the, the patients that are 2,200, but you get outside that, that scotoma area and they're incredibly functional and mm -hmm. you can actually get them with various devices to improve their vision significantly enough where they, you know, they can, uh, again, improve their quality of life and do some of the things that they are absolutely weren't able to do before with, with just general, general, you know, general glasses kind of thing. So, um, so yeah, I, 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 I don't think there's a, I think that's the, that if you're, if we're really getting somewhere, it's when do, when do we refer like your general practitioner? When, do, when do you want to refer this patient out to somebody that like me or somebody in the group that actually does specific things with low vision, meaning optical aids to improve their quality of life. And I think yeah, that's exactly. a hard, and, and I, and I that's think that's a hard I'm, thing. What yeah. I'm trying to figure out is, okay, so, um, <clears throat> one, when do I do that? Two, actually, even just from a business opportunity standpoint for the people that are listening, it's like, well, do they, do they consider if they're in a town like McCook, could you, and, and, and there's nobody else around, could you really like, uh, do this, there, are there enough people to start that sort of specialty? And if you do, is it worth like, it, from the sounds of it, it might be best to just do it one day a month where you can just take the different hat off, not think like the medical oriented primary sure. care optometrist. And you're just setting that aside as opposed to just kind of doing this throughout the day. I mean, you've done this all over these multiple states. So what are you, what are your thoughts about that? And then I actually, maybe the first one I'd like to talk about is how do you how do you know whether or not this patient is a good candidate to say if I'm going to refer or maybe this is I'm going to refer, but this is a patient that I that would definitely need my services if I if I kept it in house. So let's ask that. Let me ask that question first and I'll get to the other question. In a second. OK, yeah, I can answer both. So the first question, again, it goes back to the definition of what is a low vision patient. I think that's, it, it comes back to that. I think we're always looking for, if, well, if this patient's 2100 and I can't get them better than that with glasses, then then they're a candidate. Or maybe it's 2080 for you, or maybe it's 2060 for the guy down the road. And again, it's not any of that. If you have a low vision patient that says um, they're having difficulty or cannot do certain things, I can't read, write like I used to, I can't, I can't see the signs driving, I can't play cards, I can't see the theater, I'm having a hard time, it's really affecting my life. And you know, as a doctor, that you've done the best refraction and the best pair of glasses, and they're still sitting here saying the same thing. I, I am really struggling. I can't do the things I want to do. That's a low vision patient. That's a patient that um, you've exhausted your resources. I mean, obviously, you could, you, if, if you're kind of into low vision a little bit, you might prescribe that high ad, you know, that plus five, plus six ad, something like that if it's a reading issue, but they're going to hate it mostly because they ought to hold it, you know, six inches from their right. nose, which they, they don't like that. Um, but you could mm -hmm. certainly do that. Um, but, and you could throw them a handheld magnifier, but that doesn't do any of their distance stuff. So you're, and most really want to see uh, that intermediate distance, the faces, the TV, the outside things, they're missing those things. So again, if you have a patient that's, that's basically saying they cannot do these certain things in their day-to-day -day life, and you know you've done your best refraction. They got the best pair of glasses that you know that, that you can do, and you're still getting that. 
that's a low vision patient. And again, doesn't matter what the vision is. 2040, 2060, 2080, 2100, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what their disease is. Um, uh, although I will tell you with, with what I do, your macular diseases are definitely the most successful. You get into glaucoma and some of those, those mm -hmm. are a little more difficult. Um, and, and there's the whole stroke thing, which there's actually, we do some side vision awareness classes that are for those. So we will see those patients as totally different type of exam. Um, but for the most part, it is those, uh, the macular degeneration is the most common and all the ones we help the most. Rod cone dystrophies are great. Optic atrophy is slam dunk every time. Mm. Um, people don't think that it goes back to my first patient. I saw you think this guy's 2300. What the heck's he doing driving around? Well, he probably, you know, in, in a sense, probably, probably should have been. He's out in the rural middle of nowhere. And so there's not much to hit other than maybe a few cows and, and things like that. But um, the guy could see 2025 through that scope. And with his uh, 4X, uh, 4X uh, bioptic, he was seeing well enough to pass the driver's test. Um, so, you know, very functional. And so yeah. they need a little higher mag. So they're treated differently, but they're great candidates. So, um, again, going back to your original, when do I refer, who do I refer? Um, again, those are the ones. I think the ones we typically get referrals from from ODs are the ones that are either hand motion or light perception. That's the ones we usually, that's if we get a referral from an OD, that's what it is. It's not the ones you can really help. The ones you can really help are the ones that still have some functional ability somewhere that you can tap into and enhance what they have. But we do you don't... think that ophthalmology is better? Is that what you're saying? You're better at, at referring those patients earlier? You know, um, this has been a process. When I first started, um, we didn't get referrals from anybody, to be mm -hmm. honest. We've really worked on establishing relationships with the medical, the retina docs. I would say right now, retina docs definitely are better referrers than, than ODs. And I think it comes down to, I think there's a fear um, within our profession of losing patients or losing the families along with them if we refer them out of our practice. I think that, I think that is one of the, one of the problems is that, um, that there's a fear of referring for fact of losing the patients, which we've really worked on. We have a referral program within our group now we've created where there's we're not interested. I mean, my low vision is not interested in, in acquiring a regular patient as well. It's right. purely back. So anyway, there's, there's some creative stuff being done there that, that makes it easier. And so then, yeah, to that point though, Rob, you've got, so like, let's say, um, when you, when you, when you travel around those States, you're there. And then once that patient, you've solved that patient's problem, they're not coming back to you unless, uh, is that right? Unless they have a yes. new problem or they need a new widget. Yep. hundred percent. So, so they still need their, their primary care. They still have dry eye, they still have glaucoma suspect. They still have their macular degeneration, their optic head, whatever else they're going to develop with their eyes. Yes. So they still 100%. need that. Yes. And, and I wonder how much do you think this applies to, well, the patient, the value of the patient is in purchasing the glasses and now I'm not going to be able to sell them the glasses. I mean, is there anything to that from, from a primary care standpoint? Because to your point, you're not going to lose that patient by the way that you're, you're taking care of them. Yes. Um, you know, yeah, I, I, there's always that, uh, yeah, I, we have no, I have no interest in seeing that patient in the regular primary care. I have no interest in actually prescribing regular glasses for them either. Cause I say, you know, whether I have a new prescription, go back to your regular care. And if you want a, a regular primary care doctor and, and get your glasses there. So again, I have no no interest in that. They know that. And, and again, yeah, we see repeat patients. We'll see them again, maybe two or three years later because their vision has changed or they want a new device or they're having trouble somewhere else. And, and we'll see them for the low vision services only. So, um, I think that's, I think a, that's a really important thing. Like, you know, we get, 
It's very hard. So in our practice, we obviously for, for sclera lenses, we get them uh, for myopia management, which always interesting to me, um, where, but, but a lot of it, you still will get people that come in and they, they're now 12 years old. And the doctor that was seeing them was, you know, like giving them more and more near. So they started when they were six, their first classes were there when they were mm-hmm. six and now they're 12. It's like, well, 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 we'll help you, but, but it's not nearly as easy to help you. I mean, we don't say this obviously, but, but then it's yeah, like, well, sure. what was the, why did the other doctor not talk about this or, or they they finally talked about it or they, and so now they're in there, like to your point, it's like, well, you're blind now. I, I can't really help you that much. Yeah. Uh, or this isn't yeah. the, the perfect yeah. patient for that. And, and I just wonder, like it, it, even with myopia management, it's hard because the way we manage those patients outside of atropine is going to be with a contact lens or with, uh, you know, an overnight lens or a daytime lens. And at some point in the future, it's going to be with a spectacle lens, likely. Yeah. And right. so yeah. if that. I didn't get that. Could you try again? Siri, Siri thought I was talking to her. Um, I don't know where that's come. Yeah. Okay. Is no, that you? It wasn't, that wasn't me then. Uh, okay. So the point in saying that is just that, okay. um, is just that like, that is a little harder to establish a referral based practice that way because you can, and, and, and you do, you say like, well, you can keep going to Dr. So-and-so if they referred you in, you can keep going to Dr. So-and-so for all your primary care. But, but at the same time, I'm like, well, but I have to get, you know, like I have to come to you for my orthokeratology lenses and they don't do those things. Well, so that mm-hmm. it's a much easier yeah. transition is what I'm saying to use, to have a low vision referral network because there isn't any overlap in that case. Yeah, no, I agree. I think it, it, it seems easy. Uh, for some reason I've been doing this for 18 years and we're just now getting some with the programs we've developed with ODs and trying to get more, more known in our, our areas, um, that that's starting to happen more. But I will tell you from the beginning, it was, we didn't even go down that road as far as referral. Um, it was basically acquiring, word of mouth or just, uh, you know, the, the MDs started becoming a little more players in some areas, if you got a good relationship with them, but otherwise it's, it was a hard thing. And it, it doesn't, it didn't make sense on the, on its surface of why there wasn't that, you know, referral. But like I said, I, I don't think a lot of people know, uh, knew about groups like I'm involved with that are, that really do really focus on their, their independence, quality of life issues. And that's what we prescribe around that nobody else really does. Um, and I think that's, that's our value. And um, that's why I do what I do, but it's, it's starting to get better at the education side of things. You're actually seeing when I went to education, there was never, ever one lecture that talked about low vision ever. It, you might've got one that talked about, you know, the diagnosis of certain retinal diseases, but as far as actually the low vision care things, nothing. In fact, even now, I don't know if you have, I mean, you go to a lot of them and I, I think that's, no. that's not something you see. That's not something we hear in our training and our, in our education, our CE it's, it's non-existent. Um, it's even non-existent in the journals. Um, you know, review of optometry and all the journals, you'll rarely see anything about actually an article on once patients lose vision, then what it's always on the other side of it. Like I said earlier, the diagnosis and the treatment, preventative treatment. We're really good at that. And that's what, that's all you'll read about in the journals. That's all you'll see anywhere. You'll never see anything or have a speaker or a magazine talk about what about this group of patients that have lost vision? What are we doing with them as a profession? The answer is 
we're doing very little as a collective group, very little. And that's kind of where our group kind well, of. Well, I think, and I think that we can take we can take that about. kind of to the next point is that what is your so because you need help, right? I think that's ultimately why you and I had had. I mean, we've we've known each other for a long time, but specifically, we've discussed this now for probably six or seven months. And 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 you you and your group need help to be able to expand these services, offer them in communities across not just Nebraska, South Dakota, Colorado, but but all over the country. So. Um, sure. Tell me about that. Tell me, tell me like, all right, say I wanted to help. Um, where do I go? What do I need to do? What's the, like, is there an underlying investment in the technology and in the education? Tell me about that a little bit. So, so people can, that are interested as they listen to this could say, yeah, this sounds like something I, I do want to do. And, and this is where I can go to solve that. Yeah, no, that's, and that's changed quite a bit too, Chris. Um, initially, honestly, we had, I mean, like I had three, I had three states, right? That we, it was, it, there was not very, so few as that, uh, you know, we the California had maybe four or five docs through the whole state of California. It's a big state. And that's how it was designed originally is a doctor two per state kind of thing. Well, now um, we've realized that we can't serve the patient volume that's out there. It's incredible. Uh, the patient need is out there and we don't have near enough docs to even come close to managing this group of people, as yep. you know. I mean, you know the numbers on macular generation and the yep. forecast for it. It's, it's, it's well, huge. just to, just to put a point so on that, just to kind what's of happening the now is that the estimate is that there's about 1.5 million people in the country with with GA and at least one eye. So just macular degeneration, uh, and, mm, I, and yep. that actually, I'm not sure if that number includes just subphobial. Um, I think it could. I think it actually includes both. Uh, subphobial and juxtaphobial or paraphobial. So, but anyway, you know, a million and a half in just one. Yeah, eye. I think you're right. That's a lot of patients. And there's and right now, there's yeah. how many of you? It's a lot of patients. I mean, in our group right now, it's uh, okay, that's up that's to not forty enough. or so. That's not I think enough. we've got two yeah. two nutrients. Yeah. It's not even close. It's not even close. I mean, it's that's that's the thing. So, so now we're dividing up and 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 kind of taking states in, in areas. And so if. Um, <laughs> No, <laughs> although I would highly suggest doing that. It's, it's, it makes it much more fun too. Um, but, um, but yeah, that's what's happening now. So yeah, if, if you're in any, uh, again, if you're interested in actually being trained and I think that's a key, um, I want to back up a little bit because this group that I'm talking about, there was guys that had practiced low vision their entire life. Randy Kincaid up in Pennsylvania, um, Larry Chisholm down in Texas amazing low vision doctors, but they weren't, they weren't, um, they weren't seeing a, a ton of patients and they were really good at what they did and they weren't making, they weren't able mm -hmm. to do it much because they weren't making any money at it either. Well, they went through the training and all of a sudden they are seeing, you know, tenfold the patients. They're, uh, they're making it their primary thing, meaning they're just doing low vision now. Cause that wasn't even a thing. If you think of low vision, you can think of, you know, think yeah. of a low vision exam. It takes an hour, hour and a half. Yeah. Um, you know, do the math. Yep. Um, that's why most of us don't do it. And it's not easy. And you're dealing with a difficult population, you know, that there's, there's, you know, all the things we've already talked about. So anyway, it's changed the way they practice and it's, it's made them be able to serve the, the population so much better, so much more effectively and, and more comprehensively. So um, the training that you get through the IALVS, um, that is really what's going to set you apart and get you on the track to actually take care of the, the patient group we're talking about in the way that we take care of them like nobody else really does. Um, so, um, again, if you're interested, again, I, this is kind of a, a, 
across the nation, but um, that's the next step. That's what's happening now is, um, and that, that's okay. where you go to the ILVS.com and it'll, it'll pull up there. That's exactly where you go. Um, or they can contact me if, if they, uh, if they want to, and I can get them pointed to it, but basically Richard Sheldiner and yep. I think you've met Susan, yes. Susan Ackerson. She's also, um, involved in, in a lot of what's happening there. So, um, then the, basically the training and then, um, then you get started, get your feet wet, see a few patients get comfortable with your, with your flow, with the exam flow, with your equipment. You asked a question earlier, as far as the investment, it's not that much the way it's designed. I mean, you get a a whole kit with all your your telescopes, microscopes, e scoops, the whole thing. Um, I don't know when I did is it, it like five thousand or something like that. But you start with that, and you can add on and build onto it however you want, depending on how you want it to be. But yeah, most it's all pretty portable. I, would, I, would, I mean, if you're talking five thousand dollars plus a you know plus an educational, you know, if 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 you're thinking of my my sense is that that's you know let's say it was ten thousand dollars as an all in investment. That's not that many low vision patients to offset that cost. It's the same thing as like a scleral lens no. patient. If you're doing it right and you know how to do it, the investment in time is is absolutely worth coming back. But I think the, uh, or, or, um, it doesn't take that many N number to, to get you to the point where you're recouping that investment. Um, so yeah, yeah, exactly. So incredibly I think, minimal. Um, yeah. but then I, uh, let me last question. Cause so I'll put all the links in the show notes today, but the last question I, I would just int be interested in you because a lot of times it's like, well, how many of these do I need to do before I'm feeling comfortable and confident in it? So how many, how many patients did you feel like, okay, I'm doing this, I'm prescribing this, I'm seeing outcomes for you? Like, yes, this, this is, uh, this is, I've got my flow down. This is a, this is something that will work financially and also, well, one is benefiting the patients and you were confident about that. And then it will work financially with your time. The most common questions I get include what ophthalmological codes or evaluation and management codes should I use? What ICD-10 codes do I need to build with this CPT code? What CPT codes can be built together and what can't? And my favorite, how do I manage a patient who has diabetes who comes in for a quote-unquote routine eye exam? These questions really highlight the confusion and uncertainty that serves as a daunting hurdle for providers, makes it more challenging for them to care for their patients and provide those patients with the best opportunity for a lifetime of ocular health and clear vision. That's why we built iCode Education, for this specific purpose. Our mission is to provide optometrists with resources to help you understand disease states, revenue cycles, and billing and coding so that you can put that on autopilot and truly care for your patients. Check out iCodeEducation.com. That's E-Y-E-C-O-D-E Education.com. We've developed a premier billing and coding bundle that includes all of our billing and coding resources in one place. We also have a 10% discount code just for listeners of this podcast. Enter the coupon code E-Y-E-C-O-D-E-M-E-D-I-A-22 at checkout. We'd love to work with you. Check out iCodeEducation.com. One of the challenging things with patients is when they invest in a really high quality pair of glasses and 
and customized lenses. It can be challenging to keep those lenses clean, keep them scratch-free, smudge-free. And so we now have the ability with Crizal Sapphire HR lenses to offer our patients the best-in-class anti-reflective coating in a way that is really high resistance so that they're not uh, having to care for their lenses as much as when those lenses are caring for them. So remember that you can provide patients that best-in-quality, best-in-class transparency, clarity, durability, and UV protection in a single Crizal coating. If you want to learn more about Crizal Sapphire HR, contact your Essilor account executive or visit EssilorPro.com slash Crizal. Yeah, you know, it didn't take that many because I, I think the, the training is heavily focused on that, meaning the exam flow, the speaking to the patient, how to deal with that patient in the chair, and then kind of the specific flow to, again, get that patient on board and you to be able to prescribe the, the device. So, you know, I would say, I mean, obviously you're learning through all the years I've done it, I, you know, but I will say the, the basic things I prescribe now versus 18 years ago are They've improved them a lot, and they're up, but it's still very similar. I mean, I do some electronic devices, and it's just as an as a as an additional thing sometimes. But for the most part, um, bioptics, full diameter telescopes, reading telescopes, e scoops. I mean, that that stuff is what I'm still using today, which still show to be the most effective and most also. Um, I would say after you know five or six patients, you've really got your flow down, meaning the exam flow where you feel comfortable. Um, your speaking and your effectiveness with your communication, I think, can take a little longer. But again, the training is actually heavily focused on that aspect of it, is, is how do we really communicate with these patients um, in a way that gets them to understand what you're there for them for and offers them hope that you can help them and, and get them to buy in. So because, you know, the devices aren't aren't cheap. And I think that's uh, sometimes that's why we shy away as primary care. We we're afraid, you know, if you throw, a, you know, $3,000 for a bioptic out there, they're going to yeah. like, you know, lose Yeah, but if they've seen it work, mind. I mean, if they've seen it work um, in your exam, that's, that's what my experience with scleral lenses is it. with patients yeah. is like, they just see how wonderful 100%. it is. Like, of course, yep. I'm, I'm, I'm going to, it's worth me paying this. They'll know exactly when they walk out. Yeah. Like, I'll tell them, yeah, this is no, what it's... I expect you to be able to see. And they're like, holy cow, that would be great. You know? And that's, yeah. and that's what you're doing. No, it's, it's. That's what you're doing. And that's, that's who you have to be as a doctor in that exam room. And, and, and if you're effective and you're good at it, um, I mean, I, I will tell you the patients I see, you might, you know, people that spend $5,000 on a couple devices, you think, man, there's only a few, there's a small population to do that. I'll tell you the majority of my patients are probably, I don't know, probably that Medicaid type yeah. patient, a lot of them. And they, and they, they don't balk at it. So it's, it's, it's kind of a prejudging on our side sometimes when we start into it, that we're afraid of that. And uh, the reality is, you know, that doesn't matter. And it's what you can do and what you can show them and how effective you are at communicating that to them and, and offering them that, that hope and that can in, in, impact their life. And that's really what you got to be. And then that, it, that is, um, Weirdly enough, you would think when you're doing low vision and telescopes, all the training is going to be optics and how do you design a telescope and all the all the technical optical stuff, which which can blow everybody's mind. If you really get into optics, it's, it can be pretty confusing. At least it was for me. You got to know that stuff, but that's not really the training. The training yeah. is what I just talked about. And I, th I think that's really what uh, what what matters and what. Well, Dr. Rob Sam, thanks so much for coming on and talking about this. I, I think it's great. We'll put all the links in the show notes today and. Um, uh, thanks for being on.